Hello, everybody, and welcome to the On the Horizon RC podcast. I'm Chris Dickerson, your host and Horizon president. With me, as always, our marketing director, Steve Petrado. Steve, happy July. We're halfway through the year, um, and we've earned it this year. How are you doing? I'm good, Chris, and I just thought about it. Uh, congrats. This is our 10th episode of the podcast. So oh, yeah. Not only is it not... <laughs> not only is it middle of the year, but we've made it to 10, which not a lot of podcasts do, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, people see that we're serious and committed about this podcast. So uh, congrats on that. That's, a, yeah. that's an achievement right there. Very good. Very cool. Yeah, uh, it, that is an achievement. We continue to have great guests. We're going to have a great one again today, but we've got a couple of things to cover first. So we'll get through those and then we'll bring in our guest here to the conversation. Uh, early July here, Steve, any big plans for the 4th of July? Uh, for me, not so much. I, I've been working on what I call my uh, quarantine project, which has been redoing my whole back patio, my screened-in patio. Uh, and I'm really close, and I'm putting in the new flooring this weekend. So uh, not very exciting, but uh, certainly a big accomplishment since I've basically gutted and completely rebuilt it over this time. So yeah, uh, it's uh, I'm looking forward to finishing that up. What about you? We are actually going to do a little bit of traveling. We're, we, uh, My family goes to Kentucky Lake uh, down near Paducah, Kentucky. We've gone there for years, and we're meeting my brother and his family and, and my parents and uh, going to spend a few days on Kentucky Lake getting away from it all. So we'll still be nice. able to social distance, uh, but uh, it's nice to be on the water. Certainly a lot of fun. Uh, so we're looking forward to it. I'm trying to make sure uh, we're starting to pack things up, and every time – my wife brings out more stuff that's less room for my RC stuff and or <laughs> so, uh, we'll, we'll make it all work, but I'm excited to go. So, um, yeah, it's, it should be fun. Well, good. I hope uh, I hope not only do you get some boat uh, RC boating, but you get your uh, your axial fest rig ready because that's coming up real soon. But <laughs> I, I, get some crawling I, do time. A, I do have it ready, but you're right. I probably should get a little more uh, steering wheel time in. I'm, I'm pretty ready to go. Um, I'm excited about it. And that's good, too. You know, we were lucky at the end of June, Steve, for folks that maybe don't remember, uh, with Horizon being based in Illinois, it's been one of the more conservative states um, in reopening. But uh, at the end of June, we were able to reopen with some precautionary guidelines. We're still social distancing and things like that, but we are able to travel. And so we do have some events that we're finally able to get out and do. We're going to be able to talk to and be around, not too close to, but still hang out with some of our customers. And I know you're excited about it. I'm certainly excited about it. Uh, we've got a big event coming up here in just a couple of weeks, if I'm not right, wrong, uh, Steve. Yeah, so uh, really, people have heard of the name, and and certainly this is our first, uh, I guess, Midwest version of it. But Axial Fest Badlands, as we're calling it, it's going to be in Attica, Indiana, and that's uh, at a place called the Badlands Off Road Park. And if you've never been there, it's actually home to many of our product videos. So if you've seen uh, some low C videos and some, uh, uh, I guess. ECX and some other folks. I know a lot of the armor videos haven't been shot there yet, but it's a great landscape uh, for that. So we've actually worked with them and Axial Fest Badlands is happening uh, July 16th through the 18th. Uh, so if you've not done the online registration, you can still register on site. You just won't be an early registration registrant, uh, but you can still come to the event. We've got a ton of people signed up 
and we are preparing for it uh, daily. <laughs> Obviously, the uh, the field marketing team is all over it, and uh, myself and the rest of the folks are really excited to get out there and to engage with the customers finally again, of course, with our, our distant precautions that we'll have there. Uh, but uh, overall, going to be a great event. The uh, Recon G6 guys are going to be helping out developing the trails. So if you have ever been to Axial Fest out west and you've always wanted to attend, you just didn't want to make the commitment to drive out there, now's your chance to hit a Midwest version of it. Um, certainly going to be its own flavor, but I think it's going to be an amazing event. Yeah, I am certainly looking forward to it, and I will spend some time this weekend uh, down at the lake making sure that my rig or rigs, I'll probably take a couple, uh, are ready to go. Definitely. Yeah, I think I've got my Capra and my SCX-10 three ready to rock, so I'm, I think I'm good to go, uh, but I'm certainly going to blow some dust off of them this weekend. So. Yeah, sure. Um, then the next big event, uh, Chris, we've got the uh, Air Meet Live, which is going to be happening in August. Uh, August 15th, Air Meet Live will happen. It's the first time we've ever done a true no audience Air Meet because we can't in uh, Donworth, Germany. Uh, but we will be putting on a live event. So for anyone that lives anywhere in the world, you can tune in through Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and watch us live. So we'll be bringing some of the best pilot acts, uh, both RC and full scale acts, to the airport with just no audience. And we're going to be streaming it professionally. We've, we've worked with a company uh, to get this streamed professionally. So it'll be just as good as quality as watching like a Red Bull Air Race or an F1 race. So really, really excited about it, taking our events really to the next level with Air Meet Live. Uh, and again, free to everyone to watch. So really, really cool event and uh, certainly never been, I don't think ever attempted before in the RC industry. So we'll call this one a first for us. Yeah, we'll promote this. I know really heavily as we get closer to August, Steve, but definitely props to you and your team. Um, this should be really, like you said, a, a first time ever experience. And, and for those who have heard us talk about AirMeet, there's nothing like it in the RC world. Normally we would have 30,000 people on site watching, you know, RC airplanes, full scale airplanes uh, in tandem. The problem is if you can't make it to Donnerworth, Germany, you don't get that experience. Props to you guys for bringing RC Fest to the world. And uh, hopefully this is a first and I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bummed that I can't go, but this is, this is going to be great for everybody to witness really a, a world-class RC uh, show. So thanks to you guys for making this happen. And uh, certainly, like Steve said, it's free, so you can't beat the price of admission. That's right. Yeah, definitely check it out. Put it on your calendar. Uh, it'll be starting early for the U.S. It'll be about 6 a.m., but it will be a full-day event. Uh, we, we pushed it to about, I think, starting noon uh, Germany time, Donnerworth time. Uh, but we'll be it'll be a kind of a full day all the way into the night. So you'll get to experience, basically, if you're in the U.S., you'll get to experience the midday show all the way through the night show with the Ring of Fire uh, that was uh, the you know the beginning of the Ring of Fire for RC Fest in the U.S. We came from this event, so you'll get to see it live and in action. And I think it's going to be it's going to be a really cool experience. So definitely put it on your calendar. Um, and then last but certainly not least, uh, events wise, we'll, we'll be getting back out there. And I know there's some events uh, still still happening this year. We just uh, kind of confirmed our Urcha presence, so those helicopter guys will be there for early August. But the one event that Horizon's putting on that uh, we hope we can put on still is RC Fest in the U.S. Uh, right now, we've scheduled that for October 2nd through the 3rd. But because it's in Illinois, 
uh, we have to basically keep in line with the Restore Illinois uh, Restore Illinois Act or whatever you want to call it, the regulations and guidelines that the state of Illinois has put together for public gatherings. Uh, and unfortunately, if until we get to phase five, which we're in phase four now, uh, but until we get to phase five, we we can't host an event with I think more than 250 people, and RCFS brings in over 5,000. So we'll keep you guys posted. Keep it on your calendar. Uh, we're still we're still trucking along as if it's going to happen, but we'll make uh, any updates as as we need to on that. And if we have to cancel it, of course we'll bring it back for 2021. Uh, but our fingers are crossed that everything will go well, but we'll see. No, nobody can predict the future, especially not in 2020. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll let you guys know on that one. <laughs> so Chris, it, uh, it wouldn't be a horizon podcast if we didn't talk about products. So let's transition into that. Uh, we always have some great announcements and uh, over the past week, we announced uh, the eFlight ultimate 3d. Uh, this was a product uh, that previously used to be called the eFlight ultimate uh, 3d squared uh, but we bring it we've brought it back with a new trim scheme and it's now uh, better than ever it's now smart equipped uh, it has all new servos it's now 3 and 4s capable and because it's smart equipped you're going to get all that data down to your radio so things like rpm current uh, battery you know how much fuel is left in the tank so to speak uh, and you're going to get that reverse thrust. So you'll be able to taxi out to the runway in reverse or even use the reverse in the air uh, to do some wild and crazy 3D aerobatic. So really cool feature set on that. Uh, and it's been really well received by the market. It's one of those great 3D platforms, the ultimate biplane. Just uh, if you know RC airplanes and you know about the ultimate platform, it's just been one of the best 3D platforms out there. And so now we're, we're bringing it back and fully smarted out. So pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, very good. And on the surface side, I'm really excited this week. We've got the uh, Arma, the 1.8 scale. So this is the 6S platform, Creighton um, Extreme Bash Roller. Uh, monster truck, Steve. So this is something the Arma customer has been asking for. Arma prides itself on being designed fast, designed tough. This truck brings the tough. This is for the Arma customer who wants to take the tough side of things to the next level, Steve. So first of all, it's a roller. So that means it doesn't come with electronics. So no transmitter or receiver, no servo, no speed control, no motor, no batteries. It's just a rolling vehicle. But what we've done is for those that person who wants to either put that stuff in themselves or maybe already has uh, some of that equipment, we've gone deep into the tough stuff. So this vehicle, Steve, I know you've seen it, but I mean, it's got aluminum front shock towers. It's got um, anodized, you know, upper hangers. It's got um, all the upgrades you would want. The internals have all been redone, all metal internals now for greater handling. Um, it's all red anodized. It just looks super cool on top of that. It's got, um, upgraded bearings throughout. It's just heavy duty is really the way to think about it. You know, um, on top of it, you know, it also looks really smart. It's got, uh, this cool matte gray, uh, kind of, uh, like a matte with gloss on top of that, uh, paint job to it. And then even all the way down to the bottom of the metal chassis is etched with the, Arma logo of uh, don't just bash blast etched into the bottom of the, of the chassis. I'm sure that'll get ground down as some of our customers for <laughs> tricks, but um, you know, for the Arma customer who just wants to go hard at the tough side of things um, it is, it's, it's a uh, pretty awesome. And the good news too, is we will be selling these uh, upgraded, especially the anodized aluminum parts 
uh, open stock as well. So if you have a pre previous version Creighton, you can buy these parts and, and kind of upgrade your old version uh, to be kind of a, an EXB as well. So the Arma team, like always, thinking about their customers, bringing innovation and and uh, speed and toughness to market. So really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I know Jason Dearden and the team have just taken every comment to heart and really said, if the customer wants it, we're going to make a product that fits it. And within reason, obviously. Uh, but uh, yeah, having that 70-75 T6 aluminum for the chassis and all these other parts makes this thing if it wasn't a tank before, it's an it's absolute monster of a tank now uh, and just a high-performance bash vehicle. So, guys, check it out. All the pictures and all of the upgrades are, are shown on the website, and uh, it will be available soon. Uh, but just hang in there, and uh, we'll get these out to market as soon as possible. All right. Well, I think that's our announcements this week, right, Steve? That's it. Yeah, that's everything. Well, we got more coming. Don't worry. But not yeah, that, nothing else this week. That's right. Two big ones this week, two really good ones, one for the air and surface, so good stuff. We have a great guest this week. So I think, you know, without further ado, we should get him in here because um, for for anybody who's been around the surface side of RC for more than a week, um, the name that, uh, that of our guest this week is going to be one you're familiar with. He's got a great story and is an integral part of the RC industry for the last 40 years. So, Steve, let's bring in Gil Losey Jr. All right. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right, our guest this week has one of the most recognizable names in radio control history, and he has certainly been a part of the racing scene for many, many years. Uh, not only will you recognize his name, but it's also a pretty uh, famous family name and father name, too. He's been part of the Horizon story for about 20 years now, and uh, really proud and excited to uh, have Gil Losey Jr. on the podcast today. Gil, how are you doing? Doing terrific, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, good. It's it's great to be here and good to talk to you. As we were warming up, uh, we were just re uh, reminiscing that it's it's been too long since you and I've talked. So I'm glad we get to catch up a little bit here today, albeit uh, microphoned. But uh, well, it's still good to talk to you and exciting to hear the Losi story and your story today. So uh, we'll start off. Uh, I'm sure, like I said in the in the intro here, I, I don't think your name or you are a stranger to anybody listening today. But they may not know your story. So, you know, that's the whole point of our podcast here, Gil. We just want to learn about you. The idea is if we were at the track together and uh, hanging out, you know, what are the questions folks would want to talk to you and learn about? And so maybe we'll do like all great stories. We'll start at the beginning. Maybe just tell us a little bit, you know, how did you get into RC Hobby? I happen to know a little bit. We've had this conversation. You actually didn't start in RC. You started in skateboarding, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You know, our family got into skateboarding when I was like 12 or 13 years old and me and my brother both loved it. We did that for years. We both turned pro, but right about the time I turned pro, um, a skate park in Reseda called mini or at that time skater cross opened a track called mini Baja. And we saw that and my dad bought a little dune buggy to race there. It was a, to me, a rough rider and pretty much he couldn't get it away from me. Uh, I built most of it and kind of <laughs> just kind of fell in love with it. Got another car as soon as possible. Me and my brother were both racing with them very quickly. My brother was probably more talented than I was, but didn't love it as much as me. So he stayed in the skateboarding and I pretty much spent like six months kind of doing my first kind of circuit in the, over the summer in the pro downhill slalom series. And then just, 
hung it up and never skated again and just went all full bore racing. Wow. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. And, and, uh, so just kind of by accident, just kind of, kind of fell into it. And then I think your passion, you know, has been kind of the fuel here for quite a long time, right? Yeah. You know, my, well, I grew up when I was really little, my father raced dune buggies. So he used to go race a dune buggy class out at Ascot and do some of the, the more, um, closed circuit, big desert races, like the Barstow 500 or 400, I think it was at that time. And, you know, he never went into Mexico or any of that, but he sure did love racing. So <laughs> all I I remember race cars since I since before I can remember. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have we'll talk about that here in a bit. But yeah, I, I remember again when when uh, going to Ontario, we had the uh, the race car in the lobby for a long time. Even that was kind of your dad's deal, if I remember correctly. On that, I mean the full scale race car, Steve. Yeah, he uh, he was part of an IndyCar team for about six, seven years um, through the early '90s. Yeah, very cool. Wow. Yeah, I think uh, for those those folks that are listening, you know the um, the Losi team here at Horizon has put together a, a really nice 40th anniversary video series. If you haven't watched that, check it out on YouTube. Uh, there's some really cool tidbits in there on the on the Losi journey and uh, Gary and and. Uh, you know, pops is in there talking about it. it's really a it's really a cool cool video series. So, um, so I guess the question I have, Kill, is did you ever when you kind of grew up around RC to so to speak, did you ever lose interest in it, or was it just kind of once you found it, was it your passion for life, or how did that work out? Well, you know, it's like anything; you go through a lot of cycles. First, there's the fun discovery phase where you just have this massive learning curve, and um, everything's new and exciting and fresh. Yeah, and then you go through the the stage where you've kind of, you know, the learning, the fun of the the exploration part wears off, but then the um, what's the right way to put it? The that's where the racing came in for me. It's kind of the first it was fun to build, then it was fun to play with, but I'd say that was fairly short lived. You know, you have a few months of playing, and then if there wasn't somebody to race or a stopwatch to work against or some way to measure performance gain, I would probably say I would have lost interest. But because of racing, I just kept staying engaged and moving up the racing ladder from, you know, at that time, 10 scale off road was, you know, was really a, a new thing. And most of the tracks on today's standard wouldn't even be considered tracks. (laughs) <laughs> but we would, we would basically carve out a lane in a dirt field and 40 guys would show up when we'd race. Wow. Um, and yeah, you know, we said so we had, fly well today. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple good tracks, but for the most part, we were racing on just field tracks and stuff that people throw together. And, but it was a, just a, a massive amount of fun. And so for me, I never lost interest cause I just fell in love with racing and competing and, you know, the, the development side of things. And in, in those days, you pretty much had to have uh, the ability to, um, in, a, in a crude way, make parts for those old old Japanese cars because they were so fragile and they really weren't designed very well for what we were doing. So, you know. so when when did the ranch come about then, Gil? I mean, when if you were starting out going to other places, when did it, because it's kind of iconic to a lot of the people that know the Lucy story. How When did that kind of come into the, the whole picture? So in 1979, 80-ish, that window, um, I built a small track out on this in a dirt field next to our skateboard park. And 
just for myself to practice on. And pretty soon people were showing up and wanted to, to run on the track. And my dad being the promoter and um, you know, he was always an organizer ever since he was a little kid and organizing little league teams, um, decided to organize a couple of races and it just exploded. We, th- our little track turned into a big track and then the city came in and said, you didn't pull permits for anything. You got to stop. And you can pull permits if you want to keep going. At that exact time, the pitch shop went was going bankrupt. And we saw the opportunity to just move the operation to the pitch shop. And we changed the name to the ranch pitch shop, moved the whole operation over there, and just started building. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So the, when, you, when you started racing, was... Um... Was your was your skill set at the, like the bottom, or did you quickly progress quickly as a racer? Or was it just like you did you have to put in the hours, or were you sort of a natural at it? <laughs> oh, I would say it would be both. Um, mm. I did learn incredibly easily and quickly, so that was the natural part. But I also did it seven days a week. I was just completely right. infatuated, and nothing could stop me. So it would be both, but it didn't feel like work. Um, but my second year of racing, I was already making the A-Main and all the good on-road classes, um, as well as dominating the off-road scene. Okay. Right. So, so I would, if it would have been only off-road, I'd say maybe, maybe it was just talent and hard work, but you know, or just hard work, but because I so easily switched over to on-road and very quickly started making a huge impact both on you know, racecraft as well as um, car design over there. Then, then I think there was some 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 good talent involved as well. Certainly, yeah. Well, when when you mix a little bit of talent with a lot of passion, you you know you you get a lot of skill and a lot of uh, progression in anything that you do. So that definitely helps a lot. Right. So, you Gil, you, you, oh, ahead, you can't um, underestimate or over overstate the advantage I had having a father that enjoyed it maybe more than I did. Right. <laughs> and all the support I got from him doing this was, you know, it's just, you, you, I couldn't have done it without it. Yeah. Well, that goes, the, that goes the same for many greats in various industries, whether it's motorsports or otherwise. I mean, the father uh, being interested and, and kind of pushing the, the son or daughter into whatever it is really does make a big impact. And we see that across the RC industry as a whole. Uh, whether it's, you know, like even Jace Ducey on the airplane side, his father and mother are deeply into the hobby and, and help, you know, support him. So that it makes a big difference for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you kind of mentioned Gil starting out, you guys are, so now you're at the, 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 at the ranch pit and you've got, you're making parts for these cars and things like that. At some point along the line though, the actual team Losi brand is, is born. And, you know, what, what were some of the challenges you guys faced trying to establish a new brand? Because um, there's some pretty good established competitors already out there. I mean, you mentioned Tamiya, you know, Associated's already out there at this point. Uh, Kyosho, of course. I mean, there's a lot of big names already out there. How does this little Southern California company, you know, kind of start to establish itself as a player? Well, we, we were, again, very fortunate. You know, the track that we purchased, you know, the, the pitch shop at the time was originally Thorpe Raceway. It held the very first IFMAR World Championship ever. Um, so there's a lot of history at the location, just period, that we didn't as necessarily do. But, you know, we became the center of 10-scale electric off-road between my racing and my 
part design and taking the, at that time, initially it was the Japanese cars and figuring out how to make them live and work. And we created all the parts to do that. You know, um, so I shouldn't say we create all, I usually designed mm-hmm. a lot of the parts and sometimes they'd be made by companies like um, RCH and, or um, I'm missing, I'm missing the, the biggest one in my mind, but um but there was a couple couple of the guys would come out and I just start handing them parts, make this, make this, make this. And eventually it was like we just started making them ourselves. So it was just kind of this evolution of being the center of it. And the pitch shop in the early 80s was, you know, KO Radio's biggest car customer in the world. We were Novak's biggest car customer in the world. We were just we were the center of the the off-road scene because that was pre- pre-horizon and it, you know hobbyco was there but they really weren't into the the 10 scale car scene at all they were still mostly just aircraft at that time right right so there was this huge vacuum of of car knowledge and car support and we just got to occupy that space first okay good yeah, yeah that's cool that's it's interesting I, I know the uh one of your so one of your first products ever was a was a basically a spur gear, right? That was kind of where the low seed brand I think that's started. the first one we shipped. We tried a wheel okay. before that, but I think okay. the spur gear was the first one we shipped. Okay. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people think of, when they think low seed, they think, you know, uh, you know, cars of today. Uh, I mean, certainly many of the important cars of yesteryear, but they don't really think of the first kind of shipped product there as just being a, a plain old spur gear, but it made a big difference. And, uh, and people needed it at that time. <laughs> yeah, there, there would have been a few like handmade parts prior to that, but that would have been the first like tooled, real serious part. Because you know, I used to make roll cages and Nerf bars and things like that for the Tamiya and the Kyosho cars and sit out in the back shop and bend up tubing and braise them together. So <laughs> How it did looked, you guys- ver- looked very much like the rock crawling community <laughs> of today. Yeah, I bet that's that's probably a good analogy. What what were some of the things that uh, like how was your process for developing products back then? Was it purely input from you and some others about what was needed, or was it just a group effort from various folks within the company? I mean, how did you guys come up with new products? Well, at that time, it probably would have been mostly just you when you're out at the track and you're with your customers. It's just pretty obvious what they need. So I don't even remember how we made decisions. It was more like I'd see a need, make a product, hand it to a guy. They'd enjoy it or not. If they enjoyed it, we'd make it. If they didn't, we didn't. <laughs> it was, it wasn't any more sophisticated than that. Right? Was there ever a time early yeah. on, you know, Gil, that you either you? I mean, you talked about your dad's commitment and your passion and and kind of being in the right place at the right time. Certainly sounds like part of the story too. Was there ever a time where you guys thought, eh, maybe this isn't worth it? Or did it always just feel like it was going to be something that was going to be around for a long time and really successful? Um, God, no. We we really never hit the brakes probably until the 90s. And it was more from burnout than it was from lack of industry opportunity. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, well, and I think there was always this uh, kind of figure it out. And, and again, part of innovation, you and I have had some conversations about, you know, how you spark innovation and, and you know, listening to your customer like you talked on a little bit. I know in the new LOSI, uh, the 40th anniversary video, you know, one of the things Gary Kais talks about is he says kind of something to the effect of, 
you know, he would get the, the orders kind of from your dad or from you that would be, you know, I don't want to hear why you guys can't get it done. I want to know how you're going to get it done. Was that just kind of, was that just kind of the marching orders and the mantra that you guys worked with? Wow. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, by the time we shipped the first JRX2, we were virtually bankrupt. We were so out of money that, you know, it, you get up every day and it wasn't whether you felt like going to work or, you know, it's like you couldn't quit your job. You couldn't do anything. The whole family's on the line. So you just buckle up and get busy and you just plow through it until it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good bit of motivation there when you've got it all on the line. You yeah, can't, can't you know, like two years after that, I think I suffered my first nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think sometimes though that's what separates you know people that have a great idea. You know, I think a lot of times there are a bunch of people that have good ideas. It's just can you see it all the way through? And there are those points where, like you said, you're next to broke. You're just dead tired. You know, you have some bad luck. And I think for a lot of people, that's the difference. And it seems like, especially early on with Losi, um, but I think that DNA is still very much there is this idea of, you know, well, it's our job to figure it out. Right. And again, if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. We're going to listen to our customer. But, you know, there's just, it seems to me that's one of the things I've always been amazed with, with Losi and especially the engineering side of things is just this idea of, well, we have to figure it out. You know, we have to kind of do what can't be done or do what needs to be done for the customer. And um, I just thought it was kind of funny when, when Gary made that comment in the in the series, because I, I think that's an important part of the low CDNA is figure it out. <laughs> so that's so even a part of Horizon's DNA today. Well, you know, Chris? Yeah. I mean, we, we just, we don't give up. That's true. <laughs> We just innovate and figure it yeah. out. So it's it's an important thing as a, a innovative company, you know, any innovative company out there. You just you just do it until you get yeah. it right. <laughs> you put in the you know, hour. You're right, Stephen. I know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and certainly not an original quote, but I know as you've heard many times, Joe Ambrose always used to kind of use the, "Well, if it was easy, anybody would do it." Right, and uh, I think for yeah, truly innovative companies, there is an element of just. I just want to know how we're going to get it done because we have to. And uh, that's, yeah, I just thought that was a cool point. Yeah. You know, I don't remember where I heard this, but, you know, the, and I've, I have found it to be true that you're never good at anything unless you let yourself be bad at it yeah. first. Well, I, think, I think it was, uh, and, I think yeah. Einstein said something like that, right? He said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not that much better than everybody else. I just afforded myself the opportunity to be wrong more often. You know, I mean, you know, again, kind of if you, if you, if you take enough shots, eventually you're going to, you're going to make some, right. And, uh, that's true. Well, yeah. If you do it enough, you'll find patterns. And then from those patterns, you actually yeah, start to learn. Absolutely. So it's, it is that, uh, as you and I have discussed before, kind of, even you get into the crazy things like innovators dilemma and challenges like that, that, that kind of come after time where, how do you, how do you top your, your best idea or how do you keep your best, your last best idea from making you see the next best idea. Um, so it's, it, it's challenging. Um, that's for sure. But, but it's what we need to do to stay ahead in the, in the world. So it's good. Gil, at the time when you guys first released, I guess the, I guess the JRX two, what was, what was really the competition? Like, I know you, you said it were having a hard time keeping the Japanese cars together, but at that point in time, were, was it just that race cars were, 
or off-road car, I guess, off-road trucks and buggies where they just that not durable, <laughs> that breakable, and that's yeah, where well, the competition was? Or what was it? What was it like? Yeah, the Japanese stars started coming out in, in, in numbers in the probably 79, 80 window. And there was, there was probably 50 cars you could have picked up and played on a dirt track with. Um, there was just like four or five that really rose to the top. And uh, the industry grew on that. I mean, it was like that was probably the heyday of the shops doing the best in 10 scale electric off-road. And then that, that lasted until, you know, probably associated Let's see. So I, I went, my first sponsor outside my father was Delta for on-road and shortly thereafter um, associated approached us and asked them to help participate developing the RC 10 with them. So I switched over and started driving for them in, in 84 and helped, I didn't do any design work, but I got exposed to design work and engineering for the first time. Um, you know, Roger Curtis was amazingly smart man and his process um, and how he went through the discovery period and quizzed all the dry racers. And, you know, I spent hours down there going through just question after question and looking over sketches with him and then getting out there and testing the first car. So that was a huge influence in, in my actual engineering side of my life, um, being part of that project and working with Curtis Hustings to, to build it and make all the parts and get out and run it. And was just, I was hooked. Product development, basically racing became a secondary thing to product development. Um, I just completely fell in love with the process. And so I, I blame them for destroying <laughs> me as a racer, but let me find this this other path that I love more. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about, and again, Steve mentioned earlier, you know, Losi started out kind of with a bit of a humble development from a, a product perspective, coming out with a spur gear first. Um, you just mentioned how your passion turned to product development. If I put you on the spot, Gil, what do you think is the most impactful product that the RC industry, you know, ever, ever has hit the scene over the years? Well, you'd have to say the most impactful from the RC car world still probably is the Rough Rider because it started all this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, just that, that that's what started 10 scale off electric off road. But, you know, the, the RC 10s was the first innovative thing that actually showed that off road cars could be durable. So that had the, the durability award for most impact. Um, I think the Losi product had, in many ways, we didn't have the kind of impact associated with the RC10, but we had the impact of how to pack a more value into a kit, the instruction manual approaches, the kit packing, how to build it. So we had more impact in the user experience part of it um, and incrementally improved the product. Um, and then the next biggest impact to racing since, you know, in my opinion, since after the Tamiya car would be the spectrum radio, you know, just 2.4 technology changed racing and made it so much easier for people to be at tracks, um, that you can't, you can't devalue the impact of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, certainly you appreciate that on the air side and, and it, I'd say, yeah, has oh, impacted, yeah. uh, yeah, the world we live in for sure. So that's pretty good. You did a good job. I, I wondered uh, where you'd go with that question, but those are, 
those are all pretty big hits. Yeah, it, it definitely would be hard to to narrow it all the way down to one. But but uh, good job there with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just I had to look up the the to be a rough rider, so I just looked it up, and now I've got a good there you picture go. in my all, mind. All you young, all you youngsters listening to the podcast today, go Google that, and uh, you'll know where it all yeah. began. And and it looks a little different today, but <laughs> but it's important. It is it's definitely important to see where it all started. Yeah. Well, uh, Gil, let's let's jump into kind of where the the story transitioned from. You know, low C to uh, low C plus horizon hobby. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and how that kind of went down? Well, we were, so we were looking at, you know, we had competed against Japan very effectively. Taiwan came into the, into the manufacturing fold and copied a lot of the product from the industry. Luckily for us, it was mostly in the eight scale world, but there was still a, a devaluation of, um, the product value. But um, when China started coming into the fold, it was obvious that we were no longer going to be a viable, profitable business manufacturing in the U.S. Um, competing against China. And, um, you know, so we had to look in the mirror and say, do we want to do this ourselves or do we want to partner up with somebody? And, you know, we had such a good relationship with Horizon over the time. And um, so I'll go back to. We were part of Horizon from day one. So when Rick founded Horizon, we were one of the first brands he actually picked up and started selling. So we were part of Horizon from day one. But we always had that really good relationship with the Stevens family. And um, they had asked many times about proprietary products for them that, you know, if we would create them for them. And one day my dad said, why would I want to help create a competitor. If you want the value of us, why don't you buy it? <laughs> and that's how it started. And we partnered up with Horizon because, you know, they had a really good team doing stuff in Taiwan and kind of getting going in China. And it was obvious that we would be much more effective in the long run partnering with somebody that had that skill set and that infrastructure in place. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like you said, it's you been know. a great long uh, relationship between Horizon and Losi. And, you know, I'm excited. It's been what, about a year and a half now. Um, you know, we, we announced that you had come back to work with Horizon and I know the, the uh, TLR crowd and I think the race crowd in general were really excited about that. I know I personally am and, and is the whole Horizon team. Um, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about, you know, how you're working with the team now. And obviously, you know, we can't give anybody any too, too much, uh, news on what exactly you're working on, but kind of your role now, now that you're, yeah, you know, no. I always kind of joke that, you know, get the band back together, but, you know, having you back certainly, I think showed a lot of people just our commitment to, to Losi, to the Losi brand and to racing and, um, it's exciting to have you back on the team. And um, so maybe just talk to us a little bit about your role now and, and you know, what you guys are doing. Well, I'll start by, you know, people will wonder why I left. And, you know, at the time, you know, the horizon went through a big management change and they brought new people out to manage LOSI. And um, the focus became really on just, um, a lot of new products quickly and kind of going a plot, you know, a path down, down a path that we weren't very good at and didn't really quite know how to do and really struggled to support at the time. Um, 
And I had just finished putting the engineering team together the way I wanted. And when Bill came in, he changed the structure. And I was just so heartbroken that I was just, in a way, having another, my third nervous (laughs) breakdown and just really kind of needed to get out of there and heal. And at the time, you know, Kyosho was pushing to help join them and help them create an American president. And that, I thought that might be a good place to give it a try. But when I got over there, um, you know, we, we had a good start and AKA was born out of that. But the financial crisis in, in 07, 08 really hit them hard in Japan. And they, they, had, to, they had to scale way back and all the plans we kind of had got shot down. So AKA was a good project and kept that going. And, you know, it's still doing really well. But, um, but I miss the car thing a lot. And I don't, I honestly, I got to do a, a, a bunch of work for Firelands doing stuff in China, which was a heck of a learning curve. Um, really taught me a lot about the world and how things work. But at the same time, it didn't really, it wasn't the satisfaction of working on the high level race cars and stuff that right. I always loved. So, so you, so being back in for the last year, year has just been, I can't tell you how much fun it's been. Um, and you know, my kids are old enough now I can really throw myself headlong into the hours it takes. Yeah. To do well, it. you jumped right back into the deep end but with us just, too. I mean, we were developing what ended up being the 22 X four and, um, that that's a platform. Again, we, every time, uh, team Lucy would, would release anything, they would say, when's the four wheel drive coming? I mean, it didn't matter what we did. You know, that, that was the question. <laughs> and you came in just at the right time. I think you worked with Frank Root and the team. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I think the market really responded well to that platform. And um, so maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, that development process, because bluntly, we were struggling with that project. And, and when you came back in, it, it certainly helped get it to where it needed to be. Well, I'll say that I don't want to take a whole lot of credit for that project. I think I helped solidify the project, but you know, Frank had done a lot of good work and he really understood the cars that were on the market and he really was the architect behind the project. So he deserves the credit for that. I think I was only able to come in and support him, give him the confidence to finish the project and really assist Mikey in just some of the part design and, and material approaches. And then when you get the first batches and the problems, support them and in, in how to overcome those and fix them. So I think I made an impact, but it was really more on the execution side than it was in the architecture side. Um, so really Frank should get the credit for that. He did a lot of really he certainly hard work. Did. And, and you mentioned Mike too, Mike Mellon, the, the primary designer for the project, the engineer. And um, yeah, a lot of hard work across the board went into that. And I think that's a lot of the role we're looking for you to, to continue to work on with us is those and kind of back to our earlier conversation, you know, it's the, some of the really tough, innovative ideas you know, you just need as much horsepower as you can get to figure it out, to get the execution right. And uh, so I know I'm excited to have you back again. We've got a lot of good stuff that we can't talk about today, but um, we'll have to have you back, Gil. And, and uh, we'll say, hey, you remember in July of 2020 when we said there was a lot of cool stuff? Well, here it is. Um, so we'll have you back and we can talk about some of that upcoming cool stuff. But we definitely uh, there's a lot to lot that our customers are going to truly love, I think, uh, coming up here. No, and, yeah, and, and this this project we can't talk about <laughs> has been 
hard, but it's been so yeah, much fun. Yeah, we will definitely have you back because I think if uh, we, yeah, it, it's definitely worth hearing all the gory details about once it's out. So we'll, we'll leave that as a teaser for people for now. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit here. We we're going to ask some really hard hitting journalism. This is where Steve and I try to get, you know, a journalism award out of this, but, um, I also know you're a pretty big coffee fan. So, uh, what, what's your uh, favorite type of coffee you like and how, how much coffee do you drink in it? Are you quantity or quality when it comes to coffee? Oh, I'm a three cup a day guy. If I do much more than that, it's a problem. <laughs> but um, no, I I do coffee differently. Most people think of coffee and they think of going to Starbucks or you know or their local coffee shop. Um, when I think about coffee, I I dig around and source uncooked beans, roast oh, wow. them myself, um, and you know have all my own espresso equipment, and it's just kind of my daily treat is. Coffee is my hobby. Uh, I probably roast a half a pound every other day. Me and my kids all enjoy it every day. And um, it's both a lot of fun for me. You know, I, I can create coffee experiences that I just can't get anywhere else doing that. And um, it's just that it's another place to get that creative outlet yeah. satisfied. So, so if you're traveling, I mean, it, it does it just blow your mind to like, you know, go to McDonald's and get a cup of coffee. Is that just off the books or uh, do you settle on the road? Um, I don't unless I just absolutely need a caffeine fix so I don't get a headache. That was the same question I had, Chris. Like you, you probably can't yeah. drink coffee yeah. anywhere else. Well, <laughs> you, I, I, again, but it's not enjoyable. You know, Luckily, traveling the U.S. and Europe and even in China now, there's there's so many specialty coffee yeah. roasters today that you usually can find pretty good coffee most everywhere now. Um, you know, when I started into this, I had just gotten back from the um, the 10 scale off-road warm-up race in Torino. And Torino is the birthplace of espresso and most of the Italian coffee companies and equipment companies that we all know the brands of today are all in Torino. So it's really the kind of the coffee mecca of the world. Um, so after spending what essentially ended up being about four weeks in Torino over two years, uh, I had to learn how to do coffee because at that time I couldn't find anything like it in the U.S. Yeah, I, I imagine. I imagine. Yeah. So well, it's like, you know, some guys brew true. beer, that's some guys true. make yeah. coffee. coffee. <laughs> So um, we know your father was into motorsports quite a bit. Uh, are you also a car guy or are you more of a coffee guy? <laughs> you know, I used to consider myself a car guy. And <laughs> to, in today's world, I appreciate cars very much. But I don't have a lot of interest in, in cars with the exception of the technology and the racing. Sure. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, what else we've, we've, uh, and, and again, you know, Steve, I, I certainly recommend next time you're traveling and you're out in Southern California, you should, uh, have, have a lunch with, with Gil. Uh, he, his history and, and passion, uh, is it's, it's a great conversation. Uh, what, what else do you do for fun these days, Gil, when you're not working on the next project we can't talk about, or you're not making coffee, what else are you doing for fun these days? Well, I still ride my bicycles. Um, I'm still a little too heavy to be competitive or do anything really exciting on them, but I still enjoy getting my exercise on a bicycle. Um, and 
honestly, that's about it. I don't have much <laughs> more time. You know, you, you got, you got, you got your family, you got, you got to take care of and spend the time with them. And by the time I have my family time, my bicycle time and my work time, there's right, not much right. left. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure during, during all this uh, COVID stuff, you've found just a little bit more time, but it probably gets, gets eaten up by family time, which is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it really, with the exception of not going, being able to go to the track, it doesn't feel much different to me since I've been working home for the lot from home really for the last 15 years. Mm, true. So, okay. so for me, this is, feels pretty darn normal with the exception of not being at the track. Gotcha. Well, that's good. I guess you're just at home and, and comfortable, unlike a lot of folks who are just kind of figuring it out. But that's good. You've got uh, you got a leg up on folks when it comes to working from home. <laughs> well, um, I was speaking with our TLR, our new TLR team manager, Thomas Tran, and uh, he this is his quote, so this may make you smile. But he said, uh, "You know, I look at Gil like the Steve Jobs or Elon Musk of the RC car industry." Uh, which is a pretty big compliment, I think. And uh, you know, do you do you kind of consider yourself these days as uh, as an inventor of sorts, like Elon or or Steve Jobs? Wow. Well, first, <laughs> thank you. That's a kick of a compliment. Um, I I don't, but I prefer other people judge me than judge myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, but no, I mean, do I consider not not I consider myself a problem solver. And it could be a customer problem. It could be an internal work problem. It could be an assembly line problem. It could be a coffee problem. And I just work on solving whatever question or problem pops up. Well, good. That's definitely, uh, I think a lot of inventors develop things to solve problems. So, you know, it's a it's an inventor of sorts. You're just problem solving with inventions and or solutions. <laughs> but that works out. That works out good. Um yeah, I think you know the the uh, the next part of this is you know moving into uh, you know the industry as a whole today, right? We've gone from uh, all the way back from the found, the foundings of of Losi as a brand to where we are today with Horizon and Losi. Um, you know what what type of things do you see in the RC industry uh, that are really you know rocking and rolling, moving and shaking as far as trends go? Well, I love seeing the the modeling side of RC cars come back because obviously that's where we started as well. Like I said, I used to make roll cages and Nerf bars and things like that for Tamiya cars. And that was always a lot of fun for everybody to have that, that modeling side combined with racing. So you do see that in the rock crawling side. You do see it in... Um, you know, in the different scales, especially when the scales are new and the products aren't as evolved, um, you see a lot of people build, making their own stuff and a lot of aftermarket parts. And that's always a fun time in the industry. So yeah. you, you still see a lot of that going on and um, that's always exciting. Do you, um, do you, I mean, what do you, are you driving? What, what's your kind of, we didn't really have to ask you this question, I don't think, but what's sort of your RC Obviously, working with the Losi brand, but outside of that, what's been your kind of go-to vehicle or your your RC fix these days? I have really enjoyed the eight scale electrics. Um, kind of as far as just pure fun, that's been the funnest car I've run. Um, partly because we have a lot of good eight scale tracks over the last ten years, but sure. um, but the eight scale cars are a little heavier than ten scale cars, so they're not as finicky. 
And right. um, you don't have to have the car spot on to be competitive. You can be at 90% still really enjoy it. Where 10 scale, really, you kind of be at 95% to enjoy it. <laughs> maybe that's uh, maybe that's why I stepped out of racing. I started with 10 scale. I should have started with 8 scale. Well, I think that's why you moved on to crawling, Steve. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> A little slower well, pace for me these days. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it is pretty amazing to see, uh, you know, on the crawling side in particular right now, just how, you know, scale and detail and the, the 3D printing uh, stuff people are doing is, is really pretty inspiring. A lot of it. Um, just how creative they are. It's, it's, it's very cool. And it's exciting to see that much passion in, in the industry for sure. No, exactly. No, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. We, you and you and I have talked some too, just, you know, again, a lot of passion and, and inspiration, problem solving, you know, it, it all kind of melds together into this kind of just how you uh, approach the world and a problem and opportunities who do you really look up to? Who inspires you, you know, from a, a personal level or professional level? Well, it's been different as I, I've matured and changed. I mean, currently right now, I think I'm I'm personally thoroughly inspired by Bill Gates and his ambitions to to do good with everything he's been able to 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 accumulate. So just I find him fascinating. He's just so brilliant and intellectual that sometimes he's hard to follow, but I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy learning more about him. Yeah. And certainly has kind of found, uh, like you said, just a, a huge kind of noble cause that he's, you know, many of them actually that he's going to try to go after. And he's obviously got a lot of resources um, and, and trying to do something meaningful with him is, is pretty inspiring for sure. Yeah, and just the the level of learning he still participates in is inspiring. Yeah, yeah that is that's actually absolutely true. So yeah, very cool. Um, well, I guess well one of the things we like to do too, Gil here is you know we're getting towards the end of our time with you here, but we we do like to give our guests the chance to you know just talk. There's people out there listening; they tuned in today because they wanted to hear what you had to say. So we want to give you a bit of an open mic to promote or talk about anything that's on your mind. So we kind of hand the mic to you here and say the floor is yours and give you an opportunity to to say whatever you'd like. We can edit it out if we need to. No, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Huh. I hadn't thought about having a soapbox to stand on. Um, I think my soapbox or want is I'm still waiting for that promoter to come into our industry and create the pathway for the high-end part of the industry. Um, we have an amazing product in racing. Um, so many kids have come through racing and gone into all sorts of different careers, whether it be marketing and engineering or business that wouldn't have if they didn't race. I mean, racing, RC racing and all the scales and all the participation is much more effective than most of your for-profit STEM learning systems. You know, this is the ultimate STEM learning world. Um, and, you know, we have we, we have this great racing community that as a whole has been has almost too many companies and too, it's so fragmented that it's not sustainable in its current form, but it needs to be. And um, it needs to come from more of a marketing side where people are leveraging the STEM value, the entertainment value. Do the same thing with the RC industry that they've done. They're doing with the gaming industry, with esports and the 
same thing, you know, that, that they're doing with all the robotics and STEM learning. And there's a whole pathway we can, we can go on that, um, you know, I, I'm just waiting for that promoter that gets it, that sees the value in what we're doing and ties the two together. Yeah, I definitely see there's a big need there, a really cool opportunity. You know, you've seen the the likes of drone racing grab a huge amount of uh, spotlight, at, you know, uh, last few years. And imagine if we had, you know, RC racing on TV with a, with a solid promotion surrounding it, that would be pretty exciting. And in fact, I think it's a lot easier to follow because it's truly <laughs> racing, but with cars. So it's a lot easier to watch the drone fly through the air for sure. Yeah, the drone late the drone thing had a better hook in a way. It's, you know, it's so new and futuristic and space age and all that. And the word drone evokes you know evokes a lot of um, energy out of the community, out of the the outside community. But the RC cars are a much better um, racing platform. They're more fun to watch. They're more accessible. Um, and like the whole FPV part of it, FPV is a neat experience and I highly recommend anybody try it that hasn't. But at the same time, even if you're racing FPV, you're still by yourself. It's just when you crash into somebody, you realize there's somebody else there. Um, <laughs> where when you're racing RC cars and you're standing above and you're, you are actually battling with a guy that is the, the true racing experience. You can't get it FPV. Yeah, 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 but you're right. I mean, you look at Twitch, you know, where there are people tune in to watch other people play video games, or you look at, you know, some of these other industries, certainly, um, you know, RC cars are, are pretty exciting. And, and they're also, like you said, they're accessible. You know, somebody can spend under $200, go buy a, you know, a, a ready to run low C vehicle and go to their local track and try it out. There's not a lot of hobbies in this world you know, today that you can really get into for a lot cheaper than that. Um, so, yeah, no, and it's real. I mean, like you said, the STEM element of it too, it's not, you know, you're not sitting on the couch when you're doing it, you're learning mechanical and electrical skills. So that is a, uh, maybe that person is out there listening to this podcast today. If they are, please, please contact uh, any, any one of the three of us. We'd love to talk to you uh, about how to, how to make this happen. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Well, you know, Gil, thanks. That, that's that's pretty. That's a pretty big idea, and I, I always expect those from you, and always get them. So, uh, it's been really nice talking to you today to hear the Lucy story. I just I could hear it all the time because it is. It's also kind of one of those you know great American company you know stories of this you know company that's forty years old this year, born out of passion. And uh, it, it's a great story. I'm glad that the Horizon story was able to intertwine with it. And we've, you know, like you said, been together since the 80s um, and, you know, continue to, to grow and prosper. So thank you for your time today. Um, it's been good to catch up. I will reach out to you so we can spend some more time together. And uh, we appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Gil. Have a great uh, 4th of July weekend. I hope you got some cool plans. We do. <laughs> right. We will. Take Thank care. you. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye.